0: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Episode 221, the expert series with bike fitter Dave Luskin. Welcome to the Pursuit of the Perfect Race. I'm Coach Terry Wilson, and with each episode, I bring stories of athletes to you that share their experiences at races in order for you to learn how to have your perfect race. We'll hear stories from athletes of all ages, abilities, and races of all distances. So regardless of where you fit in, there's something in there for you. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the pursuit begin. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Pursuit of the Perfect Race. Today I'm talking with Dave Luskin about bike fitting and the importance of it. He's been doing bike fitting for more than a decade and has fit professionals, age groupers, Ultraman athletes, and even novice triathletes. Dave is Fist Certified and Retool Certified. Coupled together, he has a solid philosophy on bike fitting. As it stands, Dave has fit more than 3,000 athletes on their bikes. Dave, welcome to the show. I look forward to talking about what you love doing, man.
2: Thank you. I'm happy to be here. This is my first podcast, so a little bit nervous. Hopefully, I can uh, live up to the expectations.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No worries, It'll, it'll be fun, man. So, how did you even get into bike fitting?
2: I got into bike fitting because I received some poor quality bike fits when I was in my like second coming of triathlon. I did triathlons in the late '80s and a little bit into the '90s, and then I got out of it and was a collegiate swimmer, but I got back into it. Like, you know, the turn of the century, 2003, four or five, I started getting serious and I hired a coach and I, uh, I paid good money for a couple bike fits that were like, frankly, they were atrocious. They were like, wait, that's it. And that cost me $300. I'm like, wait, let me look into this a little bit and see who the big players are. And, you know, let me, let me, t-. I was trying to figure it out for myself. I'm like, I'm going to get my bike fit right. And that that led me down the rabbit hole of on the Slow Twitch website, the Fist Protocol for bike fitting. Little known secret: if you carefully weave together all the articles on the Slow Twitch website, the entire curriculum is laid out before you. One hundred percent of the Fist Protocol is on the on the Slow Twitch website. You got to do you know some creative re- like jumping from this to that, and then oh, search for this and that. But the whole thing, so. I was doing bike fits in the fist method, 2005, 2006, 2007. And I finally went to the fist school in 2008 and I, I literally like kind of knew it. And it was, uh, I mean, it was good to be there and it's a really cool place. Dan Enfield's a really cool guy. The, it was a three day course at that time. I did day one. I did day two. On the third day, I, I actually bailed and went and rode my bike like 80 miles up the big mountain there. But that's when I became an official uh, fifth certified fitter. Wow. So that's how I got into it. Bad bike fits. So, nice. And, you know.
1: So before we really dive into the details of it at all, who actually needs a good bike fit are who's in need of a bike fit? <laughs>
2: Well, you know, I guess the, um, the answer as a bike fitter, the answer would be everyone, but (laughs) you know, who is more in need of a bike fit? Um, people who race their bikes and want to get, they want to get all the performance out of it. They can, or people who spend a lot of time on their bikes and want to make sure that they're set up right. And, you know, injury avoidance. If, you know, if you're riding a spin bike two hours a week, you can probably get away with a, a, you know, a less than ideal setup. But once you start going 5, 8, 10, you know, age group athletes are kind of crazy, 12 hours a week on the bike. Yeah, you want to have everything just right. And then a lot of what I do, so, you know, 3,000 or so fits, probably 80% of them at least were triathletes. And I think that triathletes in particular, people who are trying to go as fast as they can by improving their aerodynamics would benefit greatly from a bike fit. Okay, um, Yeah.
1: So how often should people get bike fit? I mean, does it change that often? I mean, yeah, that's, really that's like- a
2: great question. I guess there's a couple um, opposing philosophies on that, right? Um, my belief is that there is a great bike fit inside of your body waiting to come out. Like, uh, you know, kind of the same way a sculptor kind of thinks of a medium. Every good sculptor says, it was, you know, it's just a, a block of marble, but all I had to do was remove the parts that weren't, you know, um, the statue of David or whatever, you know, famous statue you want to reference. And I think that as well about, about human beings, that there's really good bike that your body has, a, it knows how it wants to ride. There is a preferred position. Our job is to find it. And we can find it on day one, like you can go from never having ridden error bars, for instance, to a top notch. You know, I often use world class or national caliber time trial position on day one without the need to do the, you know, the gradually adapting to it. Right. You just pull the band aid off and, you know, your contact points might be a little bit sore, but three weeks later, you're you're good to go. Um I definitely go off on a tangent. I forget what you even asked me. Um, (laughs) How often? Or do you need to to revisit the bike fit, right? Fundamentally, I think we can get it right on day one, right? A lot of people think that bike fits evolve over time. And I think that as well. I think that we can, you know, attend to the details over time, Um, especially people – you know, the the really pointy end of the field, the, the type A person or the time trials that's literally trying to squeeze every bit of aerodynamics out. He might try 10 different extension shapes, four different areas of clothing. He might be doing things to his bike fit for aerodynamics that, you know, you really need a wind tunnel to tease those things out. But that person's seat height is never going to change. That person's where he's most comfortable that reached him handlebar, handlebars, that's probably not going to change all that much. Gain or lose 60 pounds or something, sure, that's going to change. How much drop to the bars can you tolerate before you comp- compromise your ability to pedal? Those fundamental tenets of your bike fit are not going to change all that much over time. We can revisit it and you can come back and we can tweak it and we can squeeze it and, and fiddle it, but it's fundamentally going to stay the same. I wish I could tell people, yes, you absolutely need to come back and pay me another two hundred fifty dollars, twelve months, twelve months from now, and every twelve months, hence, for the rest of your life, or your bike fit's going to fall apart. Unfortunately, that's not the case. So,
1: gotcha. So, I know you're Fizz certified, retool certified, and you've been doing this for over a decade. What other certifications do you have, and what other education do you have in the field?
2: I started as a coach. That's how I actually left the restaurant business, sommelier, wine tasting kind of stuff, in 2008, which was right about the time where I got my fifth certification, and I went to the USAT um, Level 1 Coaching Certification, and I got a USA Cycling. Their first step is their Level 3 certification. That was online for the the Cycling one. I have let those lapse. At the time, I just wasn't super Impressed with the USAT certification program. I've heard it's got a lot better, but the like trying to keep your certification, you know, the continuing education you need, it was just like kind of daunting and cost prohibitive for me, and I just wasn't really getting a lot of value out of it. So, um, but way back when I was a physics major in college, really, which, you know, I'm like I never really did anything with my physics major, but it definitely plays into my understanding of, of bike fitting and some some of the more intricate or arcane topics that you know bike fitters discuss in smoky rooms late at night <laughs>
1: <laughs> or online forums <laughs> yeah or online forums whichever right. yeah. yeah so what is your approach to bike fitting and what's your process like
2: yes my approach to bike fitting can be summed up in um, one word orthodoxy which just means an, ad- an adherence to historical consensus right and that's kind of balanced with the idea of sameness, right? That human beings are fundamentally the same, right? Yes, you're a beautiful and unique snowflake. I'm sure you are in some ways, but in the ways that you fit on a bike and the way your body um, prefers to operate a bike, you're largely similar to everyone else. But would say macro sameness, micro difference. Some people get caught up into the micro difference and they treat everyone as if they're, you know, a beautiful and unique snowflake. And they get one person looks like, you know, completely different from another person on a bike. One person looks like a giraffe. One person looks like a lizard. One person looks like a polar bear riding a bike with, without, you know, remembering that we're all fundamentally human beings. And there are certain body angles, joint angles that and ranges really maybe not a precise angle, but a range. Maybe everybody doesn't ride at 100 degrees of hip angle, but 99% of the population is going to ride between 97 and 102 degrees of hip angle. Absolutely. So my approach to it is to utilize a process that involves the client and guides them towards choosing an orthodox position that feels correct to them and is correct to them.
1: Okay. Okay. So walk me through the process of if I was to get an appointment with you and set up an appointment, what's the process from the time I set up the phone call with you to the time I leave your studio with my bike fit? What does that process look like?
2: Okay. So I would ask you a bunch of questions um, via email or phone call first. Number one, what kind of bike are we fitting? Um, what, how big are you? And this is you know some basic stuff so I can have a fit bike ready for you. How tall are you? How much do you weigh? Do you have any injuries? How competitive are you? What distance of race are you doing? And then stuff like, hey, do you have a favorite saddle? What kind of pedals do you use? Do you know your crank length? Just some details like that, just so I can get an idea of who I'm dealing with. And so I can get my fit bike set up into a reasonable position for a guy that's 5'8", that likes an Adamo saddle, doesn't know his crank length, but likes ski bend extensions. And then we save 20 minutes, right? When you walk in the door... Um, If you have a bike, I'm going to say hello and watch you ride your bike on my trainer for a little bit, just so I can get an idea of where you've been, what you're doing, and what might be causing any specific problem. Judy
0: was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com.
2: It's my little escape.
0: Now Judy's the life of the party.
2: Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon.
0: Whoa, take it easy, Judy. (laughs) The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. We're prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: You've mentioned, hey, my my hamstring hurts or my hip flexors hurt or my lower back hurts. And we'll take a look at you on your bike. And just five minutes, basic warm-up. Right, and just I can take a look and I'll take a little um, pre-fit video because pre-fit video, post-fit video are things that you should walk away from bike fit with. Um, after that, I'm going to hop you off your bike and we're going to ignore it. We're going to forget your bike exists and we're going to just deal with your body. I'm going to do a quick um, physical assessment. I do not spend 20 minutes poking, prodding, pushing, pulling, putting you up on the you know the massage table and bending your body in every direction to find out the limits of your movement and we should talk about that more why don't i do that but i do a real quick physical assessment i want to see you touch your toes i want to see like swimmer streamline off the wall how's that look i want to see i do this one i don't know if you can see me right here elbows together palms together lift that up i want to see how high that can go up that's a good uh, indication of like what kind of reach and what kind of width a rider is going to be able to tolerate and I'm going to watch you walk. I'm going to kind of look at hips, knees, and really the orientation of the feet, right, in terms of cleat placement. And you can kind of eyeball any kind of a, any gross asymmetry in a in a rider or a person just from watching them take a casual walk. Okay. Then we're going to mount the fit bike, and I have it set up in a reasonable position for you. And I'm going to get you spinning a little bit and I'm going to explain how the fit bike works and it's going to be hard to get started and there's no gears to shift and you can take a break whenever you want. And you're going to maybe pedal the bike for a total of a half hour in a, in a 90 minute session. I might make some changes. Um, generally my bike fits are not dictatorships, but when I first put people on the bike and like, oh, okay, something's amazingly wrong. Yeah. We're going to turn some handles and fix that. And then we're going to get into a starting position after that. It's an eye doctor appointment. Terry, I moved this. Do you notice it? If you do notice it, is it better or worse? And I want people to understand every step of the process. And that perfectly good answers are, I don't notice anything. Dave, you know, please tell me what to do. And I can do that. I can be a dictator if I need to. But if we're, if we're um, gentle and, we, and when we have a little bit of patience for the writer's awareness, right? Awareness is a funny thing. Um, when I first put somebody on a fit bike, I can move the saddle an inch up or down and they're like, oh, did you do something? But an hour later I can move that saddle three millimeters and they will notice it and they'll have a very clear opinion with it. So as we, we start off gradually, we actually start off with seat height. Cause that's a very, it's a generally very obvious thing. Most people can notice changes in seat height and they can kind of have a preferred seat height. So we're going to play around with seat height for a good bit of time, just kind of tune in the rider into the process and developing their awareness a little bit, right? So we're using their awareness of two things, really. Below the waist and their sense of pedaling. Above the waist, their sense of comfort. The sense of comfort is simple. It's like chair shopping. You know, you go sit in one chair, sit in another chair. So once we're rolling, we're kind of messing with seat height, we're going to go through the four primary fit coordinates, which are where the saddle is up and down, where the saddle is back and forth, where the bars are up and down, where the bars are back and forth. That is fundamentally your bike fit. Those four coordinates are fundamentally your bike fit. And we're gonna do those in order. And what order you do might you divert, use? what's that? What order do you use? So I would do uh seat height, and I would do reach to the bars, and then I will generally do um, kind of balance probably do drop to the bars and then do setback but we might do gross adjustments first. We might try and get it within a centimeter or two before we try and get it within, you know, one to say one to three or four millimeters. So we might go through that twice. And within that, like I always call it, you know, fitters privilege. I can say, all right, you know what? I probably started you with too much setback or I started this bike too high or too low. So I'm just going to raise it up or lower it down Or we're going to, we're going to mess with setback right now. Right. Um, and then crank length, right? Not to not to jump ahead and cover all the, the juicy topics at once, but maybe, how long ago was it? I don't know, let's say 10 years ago, nobody was really doing crank length in bike fitting, and it was one guy, it was John Cobb, um, at least he's the one that brought it to my attention, brought it to the forefront, that he basically said, you know what? Crank length might be important, and over 10 years, it, it's kind of evolved from, this might be important to... Oh yeah, this is this is pretty important. This matters a lot. I think it's taken the place; it's taken its rightful place as perhaps the fifth primary fit coordinate, especially for shorter riders. The question: Um, what do I mean? Well, it affects everything, especially for shorter riders. You know, you think, and it's it's hard to maybe visualize this, but at the top of the pedal stroke, the thigh comes too close to the torso, and the knee is overly flexed. That Those two angles being out of whack can affect everything. They can make a rider choose a seat that's too high, or they can make a rider not rotate forward at the pelvis. They can make a rider rotate back at the pelvis. So a crank that's too long can stop you from ever achieving a proper triathlon bike posture, if that makes sense, because you're rotating back and away from it, and you actually feel better with a higher seat, not because you actually like that higher seat, but because... It's getting your um, your thigh away from your torso. You notice that, and you don't notice the fact that you're actually overextending the knee joint at the bottom of the pedal stroke, right? Because you're, you're, your body is noticing that you're running out of room at the top of the pedal stroke, which is fundamentally why we change crank length to give a rider more room at the top of the pedal stroke, that thigh to torso clearance and knee flexion, right? Too much knee flexion. So if we shorten... This is a funny position for me to be in, right? But if you shorten the crank at the top of the pedal stroke, that happens, right? Right. So the thigh gets away from the torso, and the knee is less flexed. Now, is this if on the fit bike? Correct? You would do this. It's on the fit bike, yeah, absolutely. And so you know, the fit bike being everything moves underneath you as you ride. The crank doesn't do that, but we—I uh, have three adjustable length cranks. I can put people from 140 millimeters to 215 millimeters. Um i never use the long length anymore, but, um, yeah. So the crank length changes in about two minutes, right? You get off the bike, we change it as fast as we can. We get back on the bike in the same position with the same resistance and see if they notice anything. So, okay. So why do I think it's the fifth fundamental fit coordinate? Um, because it affects everything else on the bike and because it's playing out that way in bike fits. When we started getting people on the right crank lengths, the whole positions would evolve, and a lot of the times, you know, five years ago, I was just getting getting the idea myself that crank lengths were really important. And when I went back and kind of revisited some fits that I just wasn't happy with, like you look at this finished product and you're like, I don't know why this doesn't look as good as I think it should. And then you go back and you revisit that fit, and it was because you're putting a five five rider on a one seventy crank because that's what the bike came with when they really need. Literally, maybe two centimeters chopped off that crank. That changes everything. It lets them rotate. It lets them drop the saddle down to a proper height. And then when they rotate, they actually need to move the handlebars out away from them because they've now spun into the handlebars, right? And when you rotate, you're able to ride lower handlebars because that rotation at the pelvis opens up the hip angle. And the, so the rider basically does that. Wow. Okay. So
1: does that change the power output that they were to put out because they have a smaller crank length?
2: Crank length is generally not a power producing tool. It's a bike fitting tool. It's to get the position right. If the rider is what I would term massively over cranked like that, say, say a five, four rider that bought a bike with 170 millimeter cranks and this person riding like, I don't know, a 65-centimeter seat height on a 170-millimeter crank, that rider is massively over-cranked. That position might be so compromised that when we fix the crank length, yes, power remarkably appears out of nowhere. That's generally not the case and generally not what I'm going for. And it's a lot of riders come in and they're like, hey, you know, I've heard of you and I know you mess with crank length and I'm a little bit leery of it. And they have this idea of leverage, right? Because a crank arm is indeed leverage. It's a lever arm. And if you shorten it, well, are, am I not going to have less leverage? And the answer is that, well, yeah, sort of. But, and this is maybe where being a physics major helped me out. Because leverage on the bike is way more complicated than just the crank arm, right? And if you really examine it, right, you start at the bottom of the, of the leg. Like the ankle foot is a lever. The lower leg is a lever, the upper leg is a lever. That's just three on your body. Then you go to the crank arm. Yep. That's a lever. And then we start to get into the ones that we don't actually consider that much. And not to get too technical, right? But the radius of the ring, the radius of the cog you're using, the length of the spokes on your wheels and your gears are all levers, right? The gears are an interesting one because they're a, they're what you would term a continuous lever a continuous lever that you can change on your own. And you can, I mean, the leverage, the gear leverage can vary by like 300% or something like that, that you can make massive change to what I would call the total system leverage. So when you change the crank arm, yes, you're changing the leverage, but we're talking about changing the crank length like single digit percentages, right? And the leverage equation on a bike is way more complicated than just the crank arm length. But the kicker, right, is this, that your body is smart, your body is a supercomputer, not your brain, your body is constantly, as you ride a bike, solving the leverage equation or coming up with the sum of the leverage equation. And if it doesn't like the sum of the leverage equation, you're just going to shift gears, and you're going to change your leverage equation. Now
0: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW, avoid, We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.
2: You can go too, too short on crank for sure. And you can go too long, but there's a pretty wide range. Like how wide, like m- multiple centimeters, I would say. What is the range at which power won't be affected? Gosh, three to five centimeters where power is not going to be affected. The position you're going to have to ride, you know, at a crank length that's three centimeters shorter or five centimeters shorter or three or five centimeters longer, that's going to change. But the power you make is not going to change.
1: So there's a bubble.
2: Yeah, there's a, there's there's and I, I would tell people all the time, I don't think that there's a uh, an exact crank length for anyone. If there is, I'm not really sure how to find that one. Um, I've been on the bike and changed my crank length so many times that I'm pretty sure I know what mine is. But I'm also pretty sure I could ride five millimeters shorter or five millimeters longer or maybe even a bigger range than that. So we just, we're generally trying to find a range at which the rest of the position looks orthodox. I have a rider, you know, a short rider, and I can't get them I should say I'm speaking mostly of aero bar fits right now because that's that's mostly what I do. It applies to road bikes as well. You know, it's not as hypercritical on road bikes because we're not trying to ride in our most bent over position all the time. So crank length isn't as hypercritical on road bikes. So you know, I'm doing an aero bar fit and I've got this rider and I just can't get them low. Like every time I start to drop the front end, they're running into problems with pedaling which is what happens if you bend over too far you can't pedal a bike well these people you know shorter riders they're hardly bending over at all and they're running into problems pedaling the bike and that's where we go yes the crank length is a prime suspect in that case you know we take take this rider and drop him down from 170 to 160 things are looking better we get to 155 and finally we're going okay that's an orthodox national caliber time trial position has 100 degrees of hip angle. Boom, we're good. Hey, let's try 150. Do you like that better? Cool. It might not change the position, but the rider likes it better. Let's try 145. Okay, 145, we're maybe not able to drop the front end anymore because there are hard and fast limits, right? I want to get to those hard and fast limits, your overall biomechanical limits of how low you can ride a bike if you're trying to ride a bike with error bars. And if we can do it on 155s, cool. If you like 150s more than that, okay, then take the 150s, even if we can't get you any lower. That's where it just becomes rider preference. There's something going on. Their body is smarter than me. I can't see it. I can't tell you why, but I completely trust if that rider says, 150s feel better because we're doing this all in a consistent position under a consistent load. And if we change that crank length or we change anything and you say – that rider says, that feels better or I feel e- – if I feel like it's an easier load to pedal, that's a win. I don't need to fit e- – I don't need to look at the power numbers. I just need to know they're consistent. Wow. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah.
1: So you go through the two of the four coordinates and then you go through the length of the crank arm. What's next in your fit process?
2: Yeah, so so seat height and then reach to the bars and then probably drop to the bars and then um, setback, uh, saddle fore-and-aft position. And then we might go back and revisit all of those. If, if we change the setback dramatically, we're going to adjust the seat height for that. We're going to adjust the handlebars, commensurate or equally to, you know, if we bring the saddle forward, we're going to bring the bars forward. And then we'll maybe play around with drop. And then we'll do crank length and see if we can get everything looking better. Then we go details, Right. Air bar width, extension shape. We've already done saddles, right? I didn't mention saddles, but saddles are, are really. Um, I should. I should probably back up. <clears throat> What's the first thing we do when we get on the fit bike? Is address your posture on the bike, just to make sure you're sitting on it properly. If you're on a road bike, you're comfortable. Your pelvis is rotated back. Your sit bones are down. If you're on a tri bike, you rotate it forward. The sit bones come up. And we need to find a saddle that facilitates that. And that's where you get into all the newfangled saddles like the ISM, the Cobb 55s, the, you know, the physique mystica and those basically noseless saddles that were a lifesaver for females, especially. Most men prefer them as well, but they facilitate the rotation of the hips, right? So. We've done the four primary fit coordinates. We've addressed crank length, and we're going through the details. Maybe we found that we're in this new position. Maybe we need to go back and address saddles again. Maybe the saddle that felt good when we started doesn't feel as good now. Maybe we went from 4 centimeters of drop to 11 centimeters of drop over the course of the fit, so we've got different contact points. Um, I look at cleats later on in the fit. A lot of fitters um, look at fits immediately. I look at the cleat position later on in the fit maybe now, right, because I want to see, we're looking, I want your legs, I want hips, knees, ankles, right, all nice and set up on top of each other, and I don't want a lot of um, lateral knee movement, but it's amazing how much getting a rider in the right posture, on the right seat, with the right seat height, with the right setback, the right reach to the bars, and the right crank length can fix those problems, right, so then maybe we'll, we'll look at the cleat position, mm-hmm. right. Then we're essentially done, but I will throw the ball into the rider's court and say, hey, of all the things I moved on this bike today, of all the things I've adjusted, changed, taken on, taken off, what do you think needs to change? And if they're happy with it, then i going say, okay, let's have fun. Jump back on your bike, right? And that's usually the uh, the aha moment, right? Because everything, hopefully all the good things we've done, they've come increment incrementally, incrementally. Generally, you know, on average, we've made massive changes to a position in little bite-sized chunks. So it's when they jump back on their bike that they really go, oh, wow, this feels terrible. You know, hey, how soon can we get this thing set up, right? I'm sorry, you have to wait a week. And you're like, you're never – they're never going to like riding their bike again, hopefully after I'm done, right? Until they get it
1: set up right. Until
2: they get it set up right, yeah.
1: Okay. Mm -hmm. So So how long does it take to actually get – someone's bike set up the right way i mean does it usually cost a lot of money because you have to buy stems mm-hmm. risers or take the risers off give you saddle like i would assume this has extra costs just to the fit
2: yeah so and that's where i kind of break those services down or separate them because they are essentially separate services number one what you're paying for in a bike fit is a filled out piece of paper your fit coordinates expressed as numbers on a piece of paper that's essentially what i charge you money for <clears throat> bike fit is separate, right? I'm not going to just, you know, hey, here's your piece of paper. Have a nice day. I will I will hold their hand and walk them through it. Bike fit at the end of a, of a fit, could, a bike setup at the end of a fit could take five minutes or it could take five hours or it could take five days to get all the parts and then four hours to set up the bike. We don't know until we've done the fit. Right. So it would be like I'd be setting myself up for a disaster if I told people, yeah, you're going to leave here with a perfectly set up bike. Um, Number one, I'm not a bike mechanic. Dirty little secret. I'm more of a body mechanic. I can do basic stuff. Um, But, yeah, after the fit is done. Right. Number one, let's do a good bike fit. Number two, let's record it properly. Number three, let's get your bike set up so we can walk through. Hey, we're going to do this. I'm going to set your saddle right now up and down fore and aft, maybe install a new saddle because everything else on the bike, the front end of the bike basically gets measured off the saddle position. So we can at least do that. And then we're going to talk through, Hey, these are the things we need to order. I'm an independent bike fitter. So I don't, I only sell information. I don't sell parts. I tend to work inside of bike shops in what I would call a symbiotic relationship. I don't get any kickbacks on part sales or bike sales. And I don't do any work on bikes. Um, And I don't pay any rent. (laughs) That that's basically that's basically the trade off. So the bike. So I work inside of bike shops that know how to set up a bike, know how to interpret my fit sheet, and they will source the parts and they will do all the work. So last thing I'm going to do is if the customer wants their work done in that shop, I'm going to walk them over. I'm going to introduce them to the owner, and we're going to have a three way discussion about what needs to be done, how much it's going to cost, and what the time frame is. If that customer says you know what, I already have a bike shop. I'm going to take this piece of paper and walk out the door. Then that's cool. And the bike shops that I work within understand that that might happen some percentage of the time. But I will communicate with that customer's bike shop. They're whoever's setting up their bike mechanic. They can email me. They can phone. They can give me phone calls. We can keep the communication going. I want to see it through to until that bike is set up correctly and the person has ridden it somewhere between three hours and three weeks and they're either satisfied with it or they decide they wrote it for a while and, some, and then we need to tweak it. Okay. Okay.
1: So kind of to take a different approach to this, what would you say to someone that walks into a bike shop that's a brand new triathlete and mm-hmm. they don't know if this is a good bike shop to buy a bike from? is there a way to know if they're walking into a bike shop that they should buy a bike from or if mm-hmm. the salesman is just going to go hey you can buy any bike we can make it work for you
2: yeah and uh, so you said triathlete right yes okay so if you if you're buying a triathlon bike for the first time you should get a bike fit before the bike you should, what's that, what's that before the bike Before the, before the purchase. Absolutely. Um, and if you're, you're a shop selling triathlon bikes, you should provide a bike fit on a fit bike before the purchase of the bike. Do you need to include that fit in the purchase of the bike? I don't know. That's, that's up to, that's up to the shop. Um, I think that bike fitting should always be a separate service because some people could walk in and they could have a good fit and they know exactly what they want, so they don't need their free bike fit. You know, so like, what does that person get for free if they're not getting the two hundred dollar bike fit? Do they get two hundred dollars off the bike? How do how does a a triathlete that doesn't know anything determine if this is a good shop or if this shop you know gives good bike fits? Right.
1: Right. That's Uh, the big question because yeah, there's so many bike shops out there that I've heard of where. A triathlete walks into the store that sells bikes, and mm-hmm. it's, hey, we can make this work for you. Take it yeah. out today. like, And that's mm-hmm. still happening.
2: Yeah, it's and it's – I had – I was working for a major triathlon retailer in a major metropolitan area for about a year and a half, and it was like I was – I was doing good bike fits, but I was also being pressured to sell what was in inventory. And I, one of the reasons I ended up not working there anymore because I was ordering bikes all the time. Like, listen, man, I don't care if the 54 can be made to work for you. This person's spending four grand and they fit better on a 52. We're ordering a 52. Right. So. What can the first-time triathlete look for? I think that any bike fitter, whether they're independent or operating through a shop or employed by a shop or the shop owner, should have a portfolio of completed work, readily available, presentable, or, or better yet, on their website, so people can look at, hey, these are the bike fits. These are the positions that we're coming up with. If you want to ride a position like that, come get a bike from us, right? They should also read, and this is a little plug, right, for Dan Emfield and slowtwitch.com. They should Google reasonable bike fit expectations, and they should read that article, and they should understand what they should get out of a bike fit, and they should look for shops that have a portfolio of completed work. This is like five years ago. Nobody had a portfolio of completed work, but it's becoming more and more common, Right. And I, I've just, I'm starting to add videos to mine right now, like a before and after video. Wow. So.
1: so is there like, uh, I mean, I know you're fist certified and retool certified. So if they go into the shop and they say, Hey, are y'all fist certified or retool certified? Would that be a good question to ask? Or would that be going too much into the needs?
2: <clears throat> I think that's a good starting point, but you know, talking about the state of the bike fitting industry, The fifth school is great. Dan Enfield is great. The retool school is great. The instructors are great. The courses aren't long enough to ensure that they're putting out good fitters. Um, I think that a portfolio of completed work trumps certifications all day long.
1: But if you're a newbie to the sport, you don't really know a good portfolio from a bad portfolio.
2: Yeah, so that's – Right, That's what I was going to say. Then the tricky part is, well, you don't really know perhaps what a good bike fit looks like, but do you or don't you? I mean, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Um, I don't know if you took like a bunch of random bike fit pictures, right? And like, could somebody that didn't know anything about bike fit pick out a better bike fit? I don't, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm certainly not ready to say absolutely not. They could, um, and maybe, you know, if you're going to drop two grand or five grand or eight grand on a bike, maybe you should familiarize yourself with, well, what's a good bike fit look like? Right. And I think, you know, even beyond certifications, ask of the shop some of the same questions you've asked me. How does this process work? What's your philosophy? Right. What do you think about this article, Reasonable Bike Fit Expectations? Right. And I think that's really an awesome place to start. It's right. it's a, it's a, it's a
1: I mean, personally, so I bought my Trek in 2009 from a bike shop in Jacksonville, North Carolina, and Mm -hmm. I walked in, and the guy that would end up selling me the bike, he said, yep, you're a 52, and I said, okay, cool, what does that mean? He's like, oh, that's just the size of the frame, put me on the Trek, all right, cool, that's that's it, I was like, Mm -hmm. okay, cool, I didn't know any better, Uh now, knowing what I know now, over the past 10 years of information that I've learned through everything That was a terrible mistake on my in in my part. Mm -hmm. But I think if someone that is new to the sport doesn't know that, hey, that's actually not the way things should go, it should actually be a lot more detailed, there should be more questions, hey, what's your 10-year plan for the sport? Is this going to be a beginner-level, entry-level bike, or is this going to be a bike you keep for 10 years, or is this Mm going to be... A bike you want to ride every weekend, every now and then. I mean, these questions are actually things of merit because it tells the person that's selling you the bike what level you're going to be getting versus your
2: expectations of it. Mm -hmm. Well, and my thought on that is that, uh, you know, this kind of plays into a couple other questions that a good bike fit is a good bike fit. You know, and if you're a beginner, I'm not, we're kind of ripping the bandaid off. Like you're going to leave with an excellent time trial position that should serve you well for 10 years. If you go, Hey, I'm starting out and I want to, I just want to finish a sprint triathlon, but I want to try bike. I'm going to give you an excellent position that 10 years from now, you're going, man, I'm like seven minutes away. I'm going to get my Kona spot this year. I want you to still be able to ride that position. Maybe it's evolved. Maybe, maybe we've tweaked it, but it's fundamentally the same. I'm not going to start you out, you know, 10 centimeters up in the air because you're a beginner because there's no reason to do that. There's no, there's no real reason to like gradually adapt to a proper position. And and that's what people say. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to gradually adapt to, um, to a more aggressive position. I hate the word aggressive. I use the word appropriate. And I hate gradually adapting to things. I would term that as you're just riding a crappy position until you decide to ride a good one. Let's rip the Band-Aid off and put you in a good position regardless of if this is your first tri-bike, your fifth tri-bike, your first triathlon, or your 10th trip to Kona. The fundamental process is the same, and the fundamental position that should come out of that process is going to be the same.
1: Wow. Wow. So, what about the people that love to put risers on bikes? Like, I was at Boulder 70.3 in 2017, and I saw this bike. It was a P5X, and I Mm -hmm. bet it had six inches of risers on there. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting there looking at that going, wow, somebody really did a number on you. Like that was my thought. Like you spent how much on the bike
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and then you just practically made it useless because you put six inches of risers on there.
2: Yeah. And and I would say that's exactly what happened. Somebody really did a number on that rider. They didn't choose to do that to themselves. And if they did choose to do that to themselves, then the the bike fitter's job is to really explain to them why that's not necessary. (laughs) And yes, sure, somebody's out there thinking, um, "Well, I I need these. My vertebrae are fused, or I, you know, I'm 280 pounds, or I have this, and this, and that. You know, physical limitation. Why I need? Sure, there's there's less than one percent of people would need to ride that position, in my opinion. <clears throat> Why? How do they end up like that? Is because bike fitters either don't have equipment, they don't have a fit bike where they are able to determine." the proper drop, right, I want you to ride as low as you can and still be able to pedal the bike, eat, breathe, digest, generally enjoy the sport, which is usually a pretty low, pretty orthodox, pretty similar position from other athletes that are in excellent positions, but somebody without an understanding of sameness and orthodoxy and somebody that's not using proper equipment is just playing it safe, right, I'm going to put this rider up high. They're going to be able to breathe, see down the road, maybe not go that fast. But it's just it's really just a misunderstanding of the art of bike fitting. And it's a misunderstanding of how bodies work, in my opinion, in almost every case.
1: Wow. So what about the idea of putting arrow bars on a road bike? Why is that a bad idea and why should you not do that?
2: Um, I don't think it's a bad idea. I think you should do it, but I don't think you should. You cannot just put aero bars on a road bike because the fundamental geometry of the frame is different. So if you want your road bike right to ride like a triathlon bike, you've got to understand how a triathlon bike differs in terms of basic frame geometry. The um, Right when aero bars were invented, aero bars were the first thing. They went on road bikes, and then people started observing, hey, look at how – they ride, they always slide forward to the front of the saddle, and they always adjust the handlebars down as low as they can go. Hey, let's make a bike like that. And again, we'll come, up, come back to Dan Emfield, found at Quintana, Quintana Roo Bikes, with the premise, hey, let's build a bike from the error bars back. That had two fundamental changes from a road bike. The seat tube was steeper, bringing the saddle forward, and the head tube was shorter, bringing the handlebars down. Right. So if you want to put aero bars on your road bike, you kind of have to mimic those changes. Right. So you have to either slam your seat forward or you have to get an aftermarket seat post that kind of dog legs your seat forward. Right. And then you might need to swap out a stem. Right. You might need to go a little longer. You might need to get a stem that angles down. You basically have to change the geometry of your road bike so you can put aero bars on your road bike you are almost certainly going to need a saddle that facilitates the rotation required to properly ride. You might need a seat post to get your saddle far enough forward. And then if you've gone ahead and done a bike fit, you might find out that you want to put a shorter crank on that bike as well. So aero bars, saddle, maybe a seat post, maybe a crank set. But aero bars and saddle pushed forward, definitely. You cannot, like some of the worst fits out there are people that I got, these aero bars, I bolted them on my road bike and I'm riding like in this completely stretched out position that's completely uncomfortable and I never actually ride in my aero bars anyway. I wasted my money. This is a mess, right? I actually think aero bars on a road bike properly set up is a really good place for people to start. And if you're coming to me for a bike fit, we're not doing anything different. We're still going to come up with the position that works for your body and then we will evaluate your equipment to see what's required. To set it up that way. I would tell people um, to get your road bike to work like a tri-bike going to cost you between 500 and and $1,000 once you factor in the bike fit, which is still cheaper than most tri-bikes. And it's going to get you a large percentage of the speed gains that a triathlon bike is going to get you.
0: Wow. So – Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.
1: What about the fit process is different when you already have a bike versus people that don't have a bike yet? And knowing that road bikes with aero bars are cheaper, why would you not just go with a road bike with aero bars versus a tri bike whenever... One is more stiff and rigid, and you're going to have more manu- man- maneuverability on the road, bike mm-hmm. with aero bars. Like, There's a big compare and contrast there.
2: Um, whether you have a bike or not, the process is going to be largely the same, other than the obvious, I'm not going to put you on your bike and warm you up on it. But we're going to go through the exact same process and find how your body prefers to operate in terms of points in space on whatever style of bike, whether it's a road bike or a tri-bike or a mountain bike. Whatever you want to buy, we're going to figure that out. And then we're going to either tell you what bikes to buy and how to set it up or we're going to take your bike and we're going to set it up. Um, why would I buy a tri-bike versus a road bike? I don't know. I don't know. Tri-bikes are a little bit more expensive, but I don't know that they're a whole lot more expensive. The, there's just not like the... there's not. I guess you get into good road bikes at maybe I don't know seven to twelve hundred bucks. I guess I would say is the entry point for a good um, entry level brand new road bike. Maybe a little less, maybe a little bit more. Triathlon bikes new start at maybe I don't know more than that, like eighteen hundred to twenty three hundred. I think there's some decent bikes in there, but I, you know I don't know if that's the same as saying tri bikes are more expensive as road bikes. As just saying. Tri bikes don't, there's not like an entry level, like you're you're always jumping into like a mid-level bike. I think maybe a good one, like a Felt S32, I think is a sub, I think it's like a $1,600 aluminum tri bike that already comes with aero bars, already comes with a suitable tri saddle and has that tri geometry. So, you know, getting a road bike for 900 bucks and then spending 500 bucks on it, I would never. It's like I don't know, man. You get a little bit more out of a tri bike for just a couple hundred bucks. I would never tell somebody to let's let's buy a road bike and set it up as a triathlon bike. But I would say you have a road bike which can make a perfectly viable triathlon bike. Does that you know, does that make sense? The difference. It does. Okay.
1: So. How much of the FIT process is art and science versus how much is just science
2: and no art to yeah. It? Right. Um, yeah. So <laughs> I was thinking about that. I'm like, so, some of it's art and some of it's science. How much and how much? Um, I think that the, the, the fundamentals of it, the fact that we're dealing with – the ideas of sameness between human beings and the principle of orthodoxy, that there is science backing those things up. Like science underpins the entire process, right? But then once we're operating in the process, there's a lot of art to take place. And I mean, some of that art is simply developing a language to speak to the fit client. Whereas we're talking about things that they have never paid attention to before. And then they don't have the the vocabulary. They don't have the, we don't have the language to discuss how dropping the front end down two centimeters affects your in, intuitive sense of pedaling effectiveness. So we've got to develop, you know, some of the art is simply developing the language to talk about what we're doing. And some of the art is I'm a sculptor. I want to sculpt this medium into an orthodox world-class time trial position, but this medium is alive and it has opinions and they can both get in the way. But if we can develop that language, that alive medium with opinions can enhance the process. And, you know, the, the medium, the writer can feel good about it. It's not me saying, all right, bend over, put your elbow there. It's me taking them through a process where they all, they, they effectively sculpt themselves. And So it's definitely more art in application, um, but but it's fundamentally sitting on a bedrock of science, how bodies prefer to move.
1: Okay. So is it more about the numbers that you're going after, or are you going after more of the eyeball test and what they say, hey, it feels good?
2: I'm going after them telling me it's good, followed by me looking at it and knowing it's good, followed by numbers whether it's angular measurements or ranges that I know people fall into. Numbers are confirmers, right? They are, not, they are not telling us where to go. They're confirming that we got to the right place or maybe we didn't get to the right place and then we need to find out why. So there's a lot of numbers involved, but they don't come first. First comes writer feedback. Second comes my knowledge of what is correct, and then my knowledge of what is correct includes some angular ranges for hips, knees, shoulders, and, you know, what's a good reach, what's a good crank length, what, where where are people historically falling, what is, what is orthodox, again, you know.
1: Okay. So what measurements do you use as limiters for a client?
2: As limiters? Um, I guess limiters come in when I'm setting up the bike into a starting position. And, you know, say you're 5'8", and that's all I know about you, I can set a bike up in a reasonable, call it a static fit, just knowing that you're 5'8". I can set a seat height, and I can set a range of setbacks, and I can set a reach to the bars and a range of drop to the bars. So my, my limiters come into play when I set up that bike, and we're going for that completely laid back and really upright position. Like I'm not going to start you in that in that forward rotated and super low position. I'm going to start you at the other end of that. I'm going to start you probably where I'm pretty sure you're not going to end up and where I'm pretty sure you're not going to like, and I'm not going to let you go past that. Like if you're going, starting you at seven centimeters setback. Right. And you tell me, I didn't like it when you moved it forward, Dave, why don't you slide me back to nine? No way. Like, and I don't, and you know, and, if somebody told me they want nine centimeters setback, you know, riding a traffic What does that mean? What bike? does nine a, setback set, mean? Saddle behind the bottom bracket. So a saddle pushed really far to the back of the bike, right? Um, I'm not going to let a person do that. And I'm not going to take the approach that, well, this person's just different in that regard. I'm going to take the approach that I have not yet got this person to focus on the part of the body or the effect that they should be focused on. And we're going to play around there a little bit. Um, I put it to riders this way. Don't worry. I know I'm asking you a lot of questions. I am not going to let you make bad choices, right? I'm not going to let you ride a bad position. Um, very, very rarely do I have to force a rider to ride a good position. Very rare. I don't like to say, hey, trust me. I know this doesn't feel right to you, but I know that it's right. Because then, you know, this person's going to a bike shop and they're saying, well, my bike fitter said to get 150 millimeter cranks and the bike shop owner, the mechanics like, oh, that guy is an idiot. Nobody rides 150 millimeter cranks like that's not a good that's not a good scenario. So I don't know if that really answers the question you asked me about, like, limiters. But, you know, in in kind of a a gross way, I'm going to limit them to good positions right, to what I know to be good positions based on my eyeball, based on, you know, some confirming numbers and historical consensus. Does that
1: kind of answer it? (laughs) Yeah. So what about what measurements as far as angles do you find most important or even on the bike itself, what angles and measurements do you find most important?
2: Yeah. So I'm always going to measure a knee angle at full extension on the pedal stroke to confirm seat height because that's the number one way you can hurt yourself on the bike and i was like five or six years ago i was like got away from i use a goniometer that fancy angle measuring device i had gotten away from that and i started relying on just my eyeballs and then i looked back and i was like oh i was i was putting people's saddles too high so you know what i didn't understand was when you watch somebody pedal the bike your eyeball never actually sees full extension you actually have to get a video and stop motion at the bottom or stop them pedaling and measure that angle with a goniometer to really know how much that knee is extended. So i always do that. Generally both sides um, because that's the number one way you're going to hurt yourself. And I'm going to keep you in range of seat height. Um, pretty, pretty, pretty big range, you know. What, what should that number be at? Um, 140, to 150 on the low end, maybe 145 to 152 degrees of open knee angle on the high end. If we start getting over that, I start to get leery. And if if they want something like more or less extended than 140 degrees, I'm kind of skeptical. I cannot think of the last time somebody stepped outside of that. I prefer it to be 145 to 150 degrees extended. And I would say 90% of my fit clients will self-select that angular range. So I'll confirm it looks good to my eyeball and we're still going to put a, a, a goniometer up to it and measure it. So that's that's the number one thing that I measure. Um, and then hip angle. How much have they chose to bend over and still claim that they can ride the bike? And this is this is almost a universal on any style of bike, like a, a road racer on a road bike that's you know trying to time trial off the front of a race or a time trialist in the aero bars, or even a mountain biker who's climbing a long, steep hill, we're all going to, and I use this example too, a person on a beach cruiser with a completely open hip angle, if suddenly instinct takes over and they get chased by a dog, their body is going to bend at the elbows, it's going to bend them over to the hip angle where their body intuitively senses that they pedal the bike the best. This is a, this is a universal angle, pretty narrow range, range for that, As measured, it's kind of like a proxy because it goes through the bottom bracket of the bike, then it goes to the hip, then it goes up to the clavicle, about 97 to 102 degrees. If we want a little bit of a bigger range, maybe 95 to 105 degrees. How tall are you? I'm 5'9". That's going to give you five centimeters of drop to the bars, five or four, five, six centimeters where you could operate within that range. Right. I want to see you in that range, and if I don't see you in that range, I want to know why. Why are you not in that range? If you're below that range, right, if you're, if you're pedaling at 95 degrees of hip angle, I want to be really certain that when you tell me, yeah, Dave, I pedal here fine, that you're right. So we might do some extended pedaling on the bike at that range under pretty high load, and then I might all of a sudden just take it up two centimeters and say, Terry, are you sure you don't pedal right there? Or how does that affect your pedaling, right? And if you say, no, I don't like that. I pedal better lower. Cool, you've got that. So knee angle, hip angle are the, are the two big ones. Um, shoulder angle, right? Or where does, the, where does the upper arm intersect with the torso is basically your support, your comfort. Um, that's one maybe we'll, we'll look at in, in the fist protocol. They look at that one. That's kind of like the third angle. I've kind of gotten away from it because most riders are choosing to be a little bit stretched out. I've, I've found that most riders are choosing a, a, a shoulder angle that's a little bit longer than what the fist system prescribed, and maybe even a little bit longer than what, like, the retool range for that shoulder angle. And the, um, the consequences of a bad choice are a lot less severe than choosing a bad seat height. Choose a bad seat height, and you could hurt yourself. You could be out for a while. Choose too long of a cockpit. Choose too much reach. Choose to open your shoulder angle up too much, and you're going to be uncomfortable, and you're going to come back and say, hey, Dave, I think I made a bad choice. I'm uncomfortable, and cool. We're going to pull you back in, and we're going to fix it. So, But, yeah, the two big ones are knee angle and hip angle. Now, the retool system, they put the, the harness on you. They measure a lot of different body angles. But can I – Give, give you a dirty little secret of the retool. I mean, I don't know how many there are. There's got 10 to 20 angular measurements that that 3D um, harness takes. Most retool fitters don't know what to do with most of them. And we're allowed to violate them, right? Right. This is the angular range that we see most of the time. But if you need to go past it, go past it. Like, my, my, talk about retool school a little bit, right? My experience at retool school was like, We spent an entire day learning how to affix this harness on the rider, right? Like you have to get those things really precise. And when you get them really precise, that retool system can can look at angles down to a tenth of a degree. And that's amazing, right? Handheld goniometer, one to three degrees of accuracy. That's in, in really good hands if you're really careful with it. So it seems like the retool system is like way better. And why wouldn't I want to use the retool system? I had access to it a couple of times. I've been trained on it twice. Putting those sensors in the right spot is, is um, you can have the same error as you can trying to hold your goniometer up to a body. Like if you get those things one or two millimeters off, then it doesn't really matter if you have a 10th of an angle of, of accuracy because your angle is off by two degrees anyway. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah, so <laughs> probably more than you want to know about the retool uh, system, but
1: yeah. So just to kind of go even further down the rabbit hole here, okay. There's a lot of talk about aerodynamics in triathlon. I'm sure you're aware. Um, mm-hmm. What do you feel like the biggest bang for an athlete's buck is whenever it comes to aerodynamics?
2: Um, in terms of the body and the position we can achieve.
1: Or even like a gear, like wheels, tires, anything they can buy.
2: (laughs) So let's start, let's do both, right? So body, right? Not necessarily ride in the lowest position you can, but overall front-end discipline and shaping, getting the head down, right? A lot of bike fitters and a lot of people want to say, hey, ride in a lower position is not necessarily faster. Well, okay, and I would agree with that, but it's also, I would say, a trait way of saying, it is actually almost always faster to lower you down. Sure, when we're like, we've got this completely flat back, maybe going lower and like angle on the back, you know, downwards like that. Sure, that might not be faster. But for the most part, like 99% of the people that walk in the door that are riding these beach cruiser positions, yes, chest going lower is faster, right? Um, and narrower, right? Taking the elbows in narrower is Almost, it's pretty universal um, for people that go to wind tunnels that bringing the elbows in narrower is going is to create less drag. But neither of those things trumps getting the head low, right? Getting, taking the head up from out of the wind and getting it dropped down. Like when you're in an arrow position, I would call the area basically under the chin where the air kind of flows through. It hits your torso and it explodes. Call that your scoop. We want to close that. We want to close that by relaxing and slouching down and getting the head hopefully covered in a good aero helmet to completely close that scoop off from the wind. So it's a double whammy. Your head's not up in the wind and your scoop's not open, right? That's the number one thing you can do. So don't go any narrower or any lower than you can comfortably relax your head down into that scoop. Right. And the narrow one is a big one because, yeah, narrow is almost always faster until it pops your head back up. Right. You can't. You don't have space to really get your head in there. So sometimes, yes, this is less arrow, but getting the head down there is way more arrow than you are narrow with a high head. But people ask me all the time, hey, what should I think about when I ride the bike? Should I think about some pedaling mechanics like scraping mud or powering the upstroke or perfect circles? And I think that they should forget about all that. And I think they should think about relaxing and their overall, I would term it front end discipline, what they're doing with their body, right? Because you get this completely relaxed, low head position and then you ride your bike hard for five minutes and the whole system is going to come into tension and the head's going to come back up. So you've got to constantly remind yourself to relax, to duck the head for short course riders. Like you can get pretty extreme with it. You can pull yourself down. You can duck, you can turtle and you're like barely looking out of the tops of your eyeballs. Ironman long course athletes, we want the fundamental way for them to get low, to be like a drunk guy at a bar, just relaxes and slouches down. If you ever see a drunk guy at a bar just slouched over on his elbows, he's got a really good arrow position because he's not thinking about it, and his body's going to this really perfect structural support on the upper arms, which is what we want, and then the whole upper area is really just it's like gone concave almost and it slouched down you're almost falling down between your shoulder blades that's what riders should do on their tri bikes what should they buy what's the number one thing you can buy to go faster tires really yeah tires right so tires can help you as much as race wheels like the, the, the difference between like a continental gator skin which is um I wouldn't say it's an Ironman favorite, but a lot of people that are super scared of flat tires are going to run. They're going to go in the shop. They're going to, Hey man, what's the most flat resistance tire you got? They're going to get sold continental gator skins or like a specialized armadillo. A set of those super flat resistance tires can roll seven, eight tenths, sometimes a mile per hour faster or slower than like a continental GP 4,000, which is, a reasonably flat resistant tire and um but just tremendously faster i say tires first because you have to buy them anyway so why not buy faster tires you can flat on anything you can flat on a gator skin right the rub is you could ride the faster tires and if you're reasonably decent if you can change a flat tire in five to seven minutes you get a flat tire on a fast tire and still finish your Ironman faster than riding Gator skins and not getting a flat. Yeah. that's um, Yeah. When you, when you math that out, and this may be where the physics degree help, when you math that out and you explain it to people, they're like, oh, I did not know that. Right. Gator skins on race wheels takes you right back to like regular training wheels. Um, slow tires on fast wheels basically cancel each other out. When I see, like, a Gator skin on a Zip 404 setup or something, it like, makes my heart hurt, right? Really? So t- <laughs> yeah, so tires are the number one thing. And then an aero helmet. Aero helmets can help you about as much as race wheels for about one-tenth the price. And you have to buy a helmet anyway. So why, why not buy one that speeds you up a little bit? Um, Clothing. Clothing. Big one clothing yeah clothing is huge and in you know in the last few years we found out about the, um, the fabrics themselves like some you know modern fabrics that are actually more aer- like it used to be that the most aerody- aerodynamic thing was shaved skin. now there's actually fabrics that are more aerodynamic than shaved skin so you're starting to see skin suits that go far down the arms and far down the knees right because covering up your skin is tending to be faster but those things get kind of expensive. What most people could do is just buy something that fits really well because wrinkles are terrible. Most beginner triathletes, they go in and they try on the tri suits and they're like, you know, they don't even want to come out of the dressing room. And I used to deal with a lot of people that didn't even want to come out of the dressing room because they thought these things were too small. That's the one you want to buy. You want to buy the one that's just snug enough to get into it because wrinkles kill it.
1: Right. right? One of the things that I think is kind of interesting is – Whenever you see somebody that's on a five to eight thousand dollar bike and then they're a seventy point three or even a full and they're wearing a road
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, cycling jersey. You're like yeah. you're what? What are you doing? And that's worse yeah. than having gator skins on a yeah instead of four oh fours.
2: Yeah, and I think, you know, people do that because they train that way. And then they get so used to Doing that and carrying their stuff in their pockets that they can't like get out of that mindset. Well, I'm all for like put as much stuff on your bike and put as much stuff in your pockets as you need to train as possible. But you've got to have a race setup that is really minimal and you've got to train with it enough to be comfortable with it. And then you can train wearing and carrying whatever you want, but your race setups really got to be minimal. You know, talking about triathlon and long course, you've really got to use what's on the course. But that really just speaks to what's the hierarchy of things I need to buy to go faster. Number one thing you need to buy to go faster is a bike fit. Number two thing you need to buy to go faster is tires. And then, you know, I see people all the time that are running like gator skins with ceramic speed. Do you know what ceramic speed is?
1: The bigger oversized rear,
2: yeah, rear pulleys? Right. Yeah, yeah, it's like 250 bucks for the, the oversized pulley wheels. And that's like saves you three tenths of a watt for $250 but they're riding a a road helmet you know or they're riding gator skins on their bike and they're like they're just putting the cart before the horse yeah three tenths of a watt for 250 bucks well it's three tenths of a watt and I got the money so why not but there's just a whole lot of other things that stuff is at the top of the tree tires Aero helmet, tight clothing, a bike fit, that's the low hanging fruit. Even race wheels, like everybody wants race wheels. Race wheels are cool. Race wheels are about halfway up the tree. Race wheels are I would awesome. say they're whole I would say they're taller than that. They're expensive, right? If you're talking about cost to how much the return on investment. They make, yeah. They're not the low hanging fruit, for sure. They're 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 up the tree. They're not the ceramic speed bottom bracket. But I mean race wheels can give you half To in certain wind conditions, you can pick up 30 watts with race wheels a mile per hour. So that's a huge gain, but it's also a huge expense. Or tires, depending on what you're coming from and to, can be similar to a race wheel gain for a hundred bucks or 150 bucks if you're really like buying.
1: What about the ah, I knew it was going to happen. I lost my train of thought. Um, What about the chains? I mean, the wax chain, I mean, there's so many right. waxes out there. Hey, wax your mm-hmm. chain with this. Put this coat on there mm-hmm. or buy this chain that already has a wax on it. I mean, is yeah. that really worth it?
2: I'll uh, put it to you this way. A clean, well-adjusted drivetrain is 98% efficient. So if you're a 200-watt rider and you have a clean, well-adjusted drivetrain, you are losing 4 watts to drivetrain drag, Right. Um, you take your clean, well-adjusted train and you replace it with a ceramic speed, you know, their $150 train chain, I think you've picked up a watt, right? You're already getting 98% of your power transmitted to the road. So there's not much in the drivetrain that would be considered low hanging fruit. But the
1: ceramic bearings in the, uh, yep, lost that. I don't know the word anymore. Um the bottom bracket,
2: putting the ceramic bearings there, is worth it? Well, so that's part of the drivetrain that's already 98% efficient, right? So, no, and like the the debate on ceramic bearings, ceramic bearings are great at airplanes when things are spinning at 60,000 RPMs, right? But when bikes are spinning at 80 or 100 RPMs, it really doesn't matter. Good steel bearings are just as good as ceramic bearings. Really? Yeah. I like the ceramic speed bottom bracket. I'm a big fan of it because it's rebuildable and it has a five-year warranty. That's why I like it. Because it's gonna last a long time. Yeah. But those are not I mean, if you want those are bling items. Those are not I have I wanna be the most cost effective to make my bike as fast as I can item. So just not and ceramic speed doesn't do themselves any favors, not to pick on ceramic speed, but with their marketing, it's like so much hyperbole, like they're really overstating their gains. I mean, I think they compared it to like an old you know a rusted out drivetrain that was left out in the rain for six months yeah then ceramic speed saves eight percent sure but a clean well-adjusted drivetrain is the low hanging fruit the ceramic speed and all the ceramic bearings and chain coatings and special waxes they're pretty high up the tree
1: so with the normal steel bearings how often should somebody change that out ha
2: see i'm not a bike mechanic um Maybe when it starts to clunk or make noise, I don't know, twice a year. Triathletes sweat a lot. We ride trainers a lot. Um, Before every major race, perhaps have your bike completely serviced and install new race tires. Why not? You've spent all these thousands of dollars anyway. Get your bike adjusted, right? And then, depending on your – I would say, hey, when you notice it going bad, but, like, some people don't notice things, right? People notice different things. And, like, you know your bike doesn't shift and your brake's – Seized in your bottom bl- bl- brackets, clicking. I did not know that. Well, okay, <laughs> take it over to the mechanics, and you know we'll do our bike fit. So, um, at least once a year. Okay, twice twice a year if you're if you're riding a lot. Now,
1: you know. along the whole idea of aerodynamics, shaving your legs—is it worth it?
2: I think it's worth it. Yeah, mm-hmm. Specialized did a lot of work on that, and they did the shaving the arms too. Um, and they found like what we would expect if you're super hairy. Yeah, it's really worth it and if you don't have a lot of hair. But they were finding, like, you know, to kind of express it in watts, it was significant. I don't know the exact number, but I'm thinking, like, this really hairy guy shaved his arms and picked up seven watts, which is a lot. Could be Could be a third of a mile an hour from shaving your arms. It's kind of crazy, right? People look at little things like that, and they go, well, that's just silly. Like, how much is that going to save you, like, two watts or something? I'm like, yeah, two watts. But I have 30 of those little tricks. Now I've saved 60 watts and I'm going a mile and a half faster per hour than you. And you don't know why. How does Dave go so fast on the bike? Because Dave's obsessed with little things that save two watts, right? We don't understand, you know, people with power meters, maybe making 200 watts or 300 watts, right? That's a quarter horsepower, a third of a horsepower. You know, you look at those little 50cc scooters on the street. Those things are making three to five horsepower and they're going 30 miles an hour. Really strong age group triathlete makes half a horsepower. Should go 30 miles an hour on that. In fact, half horsepower, uh, just over 350 watts, you should go 30 miles an hour on that. 30 miles an hour on half a horsepower, aerodynamics is everything. And that's why we do silly things like shave our arms, you know, math.
1: Okay, so let's just – Take for example, how much does having an aerial helmet actually give you over the course of a seventy point three versus a normal different helmet? That's bad. Um,
2: how much time wise does yeah. it give Is you? Is it like uh, five five minutes? I wouldn't say it's that much. I'd probably say it's um one to three minutes. And then in a full, it's just multiply by two. Yeah, just just double it. Yeah, okay. And I and I could be way off on this stuff. Like I refer to like charts and tables and do actual math for that stuff, then I try not to clutter my brain with it. But it's significant. It's significant.
1: Wow. So to kind of change the subject of all this a little bit, what mistakes do you see most often come to you from people that bring their bike fits to you that you help them
2: with? um people that think they so i deal mostly with people that are racing triathlons and error bars and time trials and the biggest mistake they make is thinking that they have to ride too high of a position really because yeah they're riding too high up they don't think people don't think they can ride a world-class position and they can right because the chassis is different than the engine most everyone has a chassis to ride not I think most everyone 75 percent of people that come to me could ride in the exact same position as the last World Time Trial Champion. They just don't get to go as fast. They don't ride at 450 watts. But they can bend at the waist because, you know, people, I can't touch my toes. How could I ever ride in that position? Because riding in that position doesn't require nearly the flexibility that touching your toes requires. It basically requires you to bend over and be able to touch your kneecaps and then lean on something and then pedal the bike. Right, because flexibility of- is almost never a limiter for bike positions.
1: That was going to be my next question: Is how important yeah. is the flexibility? And- it's not
2: important at, at all. I have never, I'm really like 3,000 fits, maybe one or two times. I've had some people that could barely touch their knees. Okay, if you can barely touch your knees, you, yeah, your position might be compromised a little bit. You know, some massive guys with massive shoulders, they might have to r- ride a really wide position, right? At the arms, but from the side, they can look world-class. They can get that drop. They can get that, you know, flat back that everybody wants. It's chassis, which we are all virtually the same versus engine, which we are not. Our, you know, our lungs are different. Our mitochondria are different. Our, the chambers of our heart are different. We're different in our aerobic capacity, but our skeleton structure is largely the same. And that's really what determines the position you can achieve on the bike, your skeleton.
1: Wow. So, What saddles have you seen the most common used and which saddles do you recommend sight unseen for people?
2: Mm -hmm. I would recommend that everybody uh, look seriously at noseless saddles for triathletes. Um, uh, Top three saddles of all time is basically the original ISM, which is now I think they're designated the PS 1.0, the performance short 1.0 by ISM. That was like the winner for a long time. Just everybody chose that thing. Um, John Cobb's uh, J-O-F 55, just off the front 55, good saddle. But one saddle has literally dominated my bike fits for the last year since it's come out. Man, woman, everybody loves this thing, the ISM Performance Narrow 3.0. It's magic. And, I mean... So many people were liking this saddle that I was beginning, because I like it, I was beginning to doubt myself. I'm like, am I just biasing people? And I was still having them try different saddles, but we were just coming out, And I started asking other fitters. um, Jim Manton, who's the guy that runs Aero, he does the Aero testing on the Velodrome. He does World Time Trial Champions. Like, everybody goes to this guy. He said the exact same thing. That ISM Performance Narrow 3.0 has dominated my bike fits over the last year. It's a no-brainer. I use that one. If that feels pretty good, we're going to give it an extended test drive. And if, if that's all we use, and I mark that on your fit sheet and you buy it, I can make that recommendation with zero hesitation. I do not believe in the golden saddle on the pedestal, right? The one that's going to change your life forever. Maybe you found that one. Maybe somebody else has. I believe in a line called good enough right? I want you on a saddle that is over that line. Good enough. If you can ride 112 miles in your error bars without sitting up, your saddle is good enough. You might hate it at the end of your race. You might want to throw your bike in the woods and never see it again. But if you did your Ironman and you stayed in the error bars, your saddle is good enough. And that ISMP performance narrow 3.0 is spectacular. And it is, it's gotta be good enough for like 97% of people. Physique Mystica, Another good one to try, but the ISMs, the JOF 55, the Zeke Mystica, if I can't fit somebody on one of those four, I'm confused. <laughs> we'll figure it out. But I mean, and I have like 18 triathlon saddles and like 15 of them I have just to show people how much they don't like it. Oh, that's the saddle your bike came with here. I've got it. Sit on that. Yeah, it's terrible. Right? So many, there's like, everybody's been trying to, to copy this ISM shape for for the last 10 years but it's patented and it's a pretty distinct shape and it's really, it's really hard to copy because those rails on the ISM saddles are like independent suspension. You know what I mean? They move underneath you as you kind of wiggle on the bike a little bit. Nobody else can do that. The Cobb JOF 55 is the saddle that most looks like an ISM saddle, but if you look underneath it, it's connected, right? It's kind of got two prongs, but they're connected underneath and they don't, they don't move. They don't wiggle. So, Just get. I would tell people just get yourself to wiggle a little. You need to wiggle. (laughs) Get yourself on an ISM something and never look back. Right, but you got to make sure that the posture is there and they've rotated forward and they're sitting on it. Right. Wow.
1: Well, Dave, what about bike fitting? Have we not covered that you want to talk about?
2: Uh, Let me me look at my. Let me look at my list real quick. Um,
1: We didn't really touch on the state of the bike fitting industry too much. Yeah, I think we.
2: the state of the bike fitting industry, I'll talk about that um, briefly. And, you know, I put that on there and like, I would say this way, there really is no bike fitting industry, right? There's just bike fitters and there's some schools of bike fitting and everybody kind of, you know, goes about their own thing, right? Um, like a really good fist fitter and a really good retool fitter. If they know what they're doing and they fit you, they're going to come up with really close to the same positions for you. But there's, I don't know, there's at least a thousand bike fitters, people operating as bike fitters in, in this country today. And I've been maintaining a list of bike fitters that I recommend for the last five or six years. There's, there's 12 people on it. Really? 12 people. That's, that's, that's who I can recommend out of thousands of bike fitters. Um, because mostly bike fitters aren't educated. They're not going to school and they're mostly not using a modern dynamic fit bike. Which is really integral to the process, and if you're not, and if you're not educated, and if you don't have the tools of the trade, you're not producing good work, and that, that's the bottom line. Um, so the state of the bike fitting industry is pretty bad. Nobody can get together and like there's no there's no testing, there's no barriers to entry. Like bike fitters, most bike fitters were like the guy that worked at the bike shop the longest. Yeah, yeah, Joe's going to do your bike fit. Here, hook your bike up on a trainer. Like I still think that's how the majority of bike fits take place. The mechanic that's been there the longest puts you on a trainer. Um, and and it's, it's, he's going to basically, hey, is this comfortable? Yeah, it's fun cool. All right, you're good. Yeah, how does that feel? He's going to swap your stem, make a couple adjustments, send you on your way. Um, the state of the bike fit industry is pretty sad, and that's not to knock the schools, right? But they can only do so much right? They can only educate so many students at a time and nobody's really got, you know, the fist course is five days. Now the retool course is three days. Nobody has a whole lot more time to do it. Like I'm lucky. Like I'm at a point right now, like having done, I'm a good bike fitter because I've chosen good people to listen to. And because I've done 3000 fits, if I had simply chosen good, and I chose good people to listen to uh, over 10 years ago. And that put me on the right course. But I figured some stuff out over those 3,000 fits and I kept listening to good people and I kept looking at the output of good bike fitters. Um, but I don't think a lot of people are doing that and there's not a lot of full-time bike fitters, right? There's a lot of people doing it part-time. I'm fitting my athletes or, you know, I'm working on bikes and when somebody comes in for a bike fit, I'll stop my full-time mechanic job and I'll go do a bike fit. So there is allegedly a, uh, a test called the um, – the bike fitters, this is a Dan Enfield project. Uh, it's basically a big city bike fitters aptitude test. Be fast. Bike fitters, uh, yeah, it, it's a bike fitters aptitude test. It's been, quote, unquote, in the works for, God, every bit of seven years now. And I haven't seen anything. I think that we're having a hard time getting fist and retool and specialized and tracked and guru all together to decide what should be on this test. What do we really want to test? Cause everybody kind of wants it to be <clears throat> central to their fitting philosophy, which truth be told fist and retool are kind of the same. And the retool guys kind of sat in the fist classes for a long time before they came out with their system and they have a different way of measuring and they have a lot more, you know, reliance on technology, but they're basically looking at and doing very similar things. And then the guru school of bike fitting is fist. It's literally, they contracted out to fist and the same instructors teach both things and they teach it the same ways. So, but the problem with the bike fitting industry is probably only 10% of people actually doing bike fits have been to any of those schools and probably like 25% of the people that attend those schools actually absorb enough and then go out and gain enough experience to do really good bike fits. And those are the people that you actually want to be fit by. Yeah. And it said like, so what do you do if you're a beginning bike fitter? I'm like, go slow, be careful, understand what things look like and figure out who to listen to. Right. It's tricky. Like, I, I mean, I struggled with it myself. I probably did some, some bad bike fits in my first few years. Um, I don't think I did any terrible bike fits. But you know, 10 years ago, we weren't messing with crank length. We didn't have the same saddle options. And I hadn't dealt with a lot of the really the finer points. Like, If you get somebody that's really um, gives you good feedback, bike fits easy. It's when you get somebody that's really like, I, I don't know. Like, I don't know. And they can't communicate. And they're not tuning into their they're body. They're not self-aware of their body. I'm not self-aware. Yeah, so sometimes it's like pulling teeth, right? And look, we'll always get them out. Sometimes you got to pull a little bit harder and, you know, you could be there three hours. But, you know, you get somebody that's tuned into their body and understands what you're asking them. You're done in an hour. Wow. So, so how can people reach out to you and schedule a fit? Where
1: are you located at and how can people follow you?
2: I am in Richmond, Virginia. I fit out of a local shop called Outposts. And I also fit in Vienna, Northern Virginia at a shop. It used to be Bonsai Multisports. It's now M3 Bikes. And uh, I have a website called Finding Freestyle, which is a swim program we should talk about sometime. But that is my main website for coaching, bike fitting, and my swim programs. Um, Findingfreestyle.com. My email address is coachdave at davidluskin.com. And I also do online bike fits. What is that? Um, via, yeah, via video review. So this was something I started just about a year ago. Uh, I just get, I get so much unsolicited advice like, Hey, can you help me with my bike fit? And I and I try and answer everybody. And I was starting to notice that my answers were like all the same, right? Sameness, orthodoxy. I'm telling the same people the same things. Almost like I have this file of emails, like, um, short rider. You know, on the wrong saddle, or, or, uh, you know, a female rider on an uncomfortable saddle, or a massively overcranked short rider, I'd actually have these emails that I would pull out and then I would kind of customize them to the specific question and the specific rider. And I'm like, I was getting pretty good results. And people were like, you should charge for this. And some people actually were like, hey, I'm going to PayPal you a little bit of money. I'm like, all right, let me see if we can make this viable. So I have a process, I send people instructions on how to shoot some videos. And I ask them a whole lot of questions and I tell them what they're going to have to do to make adjustments to the bike. But basically I'm looking at their videos and like, this is not the same process as, you know, immediate feedback on the fit bike, but I'm trying to make them look orthodox via video and it's worked really well. Um, you know, the question I always had was can bike fit orthodoxy be transmitted in a remote fashion? And I'm blown away because it's been awesome. Like I've done I maybe did seventy five online bike fits in two thousand eighteen and like was super excited about it. So my next step was I'm actually codifying that stuff, I'm writing a book so that people can take I take a crack at bike fitting themselves. It's gonna be called the Misfits Guide to Basement Bike Fitting. I hope I gotta get it, I hope to get it done in like the February or March time frame. So
1: Wow, that's awesome.
2: Yeah. I'll keep you posted. Yeah, ma'am. On that one. <laughs>
1: Well, Dave, kind of to wrap everything up, what is your definition of a perfect bike fit?
2: Uh, Well, a perfect bike fit is when it's a a convergence of power, comfort, and speed. So all those things come together. And perhaps, right, enjoyment. I don't want to leave out enjoyment, but here's the funny thing. Going fast and doing well is very enjoyable. Um, so, yeah, it's like it's like the, the power you're making, power you're you're comfortable or sustainable doing it, and you have the speed that we think you should make. So, if you're making 200 watts and going 16 miles an hour, uh-uh. if you're going 200 watts and you're going 22 miles an hour. Okay, this is historically you know where you should be. So, it's basically three things coming together.
1: Wow. Well, Dave, it's been awesome talking to you. I've enjoyed yeah. this, and I look forward to following you in the future, man.
2: Me too. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Have a good day, okay? You too. Thanks for tuning in today.
1: I hope you were able to learn something from today's episode. If you enjoy the show, please take a minute to leave a review on iTunes or share it with a friend. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you'd like to see pictures from this athlete's race, learn more about who I am, what I'm doing, or be on the show yourself to share your story, check out my website at CoachTerryWilson.com. Until next time, continue the pursuit.